All right, good morning. Um, it is so good to, to be with you, uh, my church family, and it is a great privilege this morning uh, to come under the teaching of, of God's Word. So let's, let's pray and ask for His Spirit's enabling power as we, as we dive into our study of the book of Matthew together. Our Father, this morning, uh, we are before you. And we praise your name uh, for the truth of your word and for the gift of your Holy Spirit to lead us into that truth. And so, um, Father, I pray now for the power of your spirit to teach your word, uh, to present it faithfully, and uh, for the enabling power of the spirit that we might behold Christ in all of his majesty and glory as he is presented in this gospel we ask it in his name. Amen. All right. So this morning, our, our uh, New Testament book, our first New Testament book in our uh, survey through the scriptures is the Gospel of Matthew. So uh, the Gospel of Matthew is authored according to uh, numerous proofs in early church tradition, as well as evidence within the Gospel itself. Uh, is, is authored by the Apostle Matthew. Now, Matthew, as you will remember, was a, a publican. Uh, he was a tax collector. His job was to levy and collect taxes from the people for the Roman government. Now, this would have alienated him from society uh, since Jewish tax collectors were commonly viewed by their countrymen as traitors and apostates for collaborating with the oppressive Roman regime. So when Jesus enlisted Matthew as a disciple, he was an outcast, an unlikely candidate for apostleship, and the last person that you would have expected to write this gospel. But when the king called him, Matthew left his tax booth and everything about his former life in order to follow Christ. So this was the man God chose to write the gospel before us this morning. It is a book which forms the perfect bridge, the perfect link between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is a distinctly Jewish book written primarily by Matthew for a Jewish audience. We have several evidence of this as well, um, including the extensive Jewish vocabulary and Jewish terms that Matthew uses. He uses the phrase kingdom of heaven more than 33 times in this book, which is a a distinctly Jewish term for the messianic kingdom. Uh, He also uses the the royal title for the Messiah, king of, uh, son of David, many times. And, uh, And other Jewish thematic elements that are prevalent throughout the book. Also, we have church tradition that tells us Matthew wrote this book specifically to a Jewish audience. Uh, Early church father Arrhenius said, Matthew issued a written gospel among the Hebrews, and also the gospel of St. Matthew was written for the Jews. Early church father Eusebius says, Matthew delivered his gospel to his countrymen. So the author's purpose for writing this book, his primary goal is to prove that Jesus is 
the Messiah. Everything which he presents in this gospel is to bring his target audience to the realization that the mocking charge which was inscribed over the head of Christ as he hung on the cross, that this is Jesus, the King of the Jews, is true. It's true. He is the King, is Matthew's message. He is eager for his fellow Jews to know and to believe this truth, that the rabbi from Galilee that everyone was talking about but few actually believed in, the man whom the Sanhedrin had accused of blasphemy and condemned and executed by crucifixion, is the one the prophets saw. He is the king of promise appointed by Yahweh to deliver his people from oppression who would usher in all of the manifest blessings of the messianic age. He is the one who would establish his kingdom and reign over them in righteousness on the throne of David forever. This is Matthew's goal, his purpose in writing this gospel. So in addition to convincing his Jewish audience of the messianic identity of Jesus Christ, a secondary goal of Matthew is to explain to them the significance of the events of Jesus' life within God's kingdom program. So the flow of his argument is that Jesus is truly the Messiah, as evidenced by um, his citation of numerous prophetic fulfillments, by the testimony of John the Baptist, by divine endorsement at his baptism, and by the authoritative word of Christ, and by his miracles. Also, that he presented himself as king to Israel, and that his kingship was rejected by Israel, and that he now offers the kingdom to the Gentiles, which is good news for us. Now, before we go further, um, we, we ought to spend some time answering the question, what is meant by the kingdom of heaven? What does this mean? I, and I think uh, we should be aware of the fact that as Americans, we have somewhat of a, of a handicap when it comes to grasping this concept. Uh, our country was founded with the overthrow of a king. We don't do well with monarchy. We don't like absolute authority. And so we don't have a, a, a cultural reference point or framework even to relate to this concept of absolute rule, absolute authority. But, by God's grace, this is a hurdle which we must get over because the king and the kingdom of heaven is the dominant theme of the book of Matthew. In fact, God's kingdom purposes is the grand overarching theme of all of Scripture. God's glory is his primary end, and his kingdom is the means to that end. Bible commentator Michael Vlock says that the kingdom of God is the thread that runs from the first chapter of the Bible to the last. And Jesus Christ is at the center of it. So if you go back to Genesis, at the very beginning, at creation, we see God as ruler reigning over the realm of his creation. And it is a rule which he chose to mediate through a man, 
uh, through, at creation, the man Adam. But Adam failed in this task that God had given him. Later, when God sets up his theocracy through Israel, he again mediates this kingdom through men, through Moses, Joshua, David, and all of whom fall short. They could not bring in the fullness of the restoration of the kingdom. But just as this, but Jesus Christ, Matthew says, is the perfect mediator. He is the Messiah, God's chosen ruler to rule over the realm of all creation. Now, oceans of ink and terabytes or more of blog posts have been have been burned up on the question of whether the kingdom of God is about a spiritual or a material reality. I believe the most biblical answer to this question is yes. Both of these are true. Both are important. There is a soteriological as well as an eschatological aspect to God's kingdom program, and these are not exclusive of one another. So we can see the soteriological, the salvation aspect of the kingdom in John chapter 3, verse 3, where Jesus tells Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So unless you are born again, spiritually, you cannot enter this kingdom. There is a present spiritual reality of the kingdom represented by this, whereby grace through faith in Christ, men and women are made to be citizens and subjects of the kingdom. And as citizens, while we are in the world, the kingdom is in us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. But this spiritual reality is not comprehensive of all that the kingdom of God means. God's kingdom program involves the eventual total restoration of his rule over all creation. So when Jesus Christ tells his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, this looks forward to the future culmination of the kingdom in the messianic rule of Christ when he comes a second time to set up his millennial reign on the earth in a literal, physical kingdom, restoring God's creation as it was at the beginning. So is the kingdom spiritual or physical? Yes. Is the kingdom now or in the future? The answer is also yes. Now, getting back into Matthew some key landmarks that we should notice that are going to help us navigate our way through the study of this book um, include, first of all, 13 prophetic proofs. The book of Matthew actually cites more than 100 Old Testament prophecies which apply to Christ. But, But 13 times throughout this gospel, Matthew writes this exact same phrase, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, this should con- convey for us a strong sense of the continuity between the Old Testament and 
the new, by, by tying us back to all of these specific details of messianic prophecy, Matthew is showing how Jesus fulfills each of them to the letter, that these prophetic proofs are the strong evidence, the supporting evidence which he presents confirming Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. So Matthew's Jewish audience, for them, the primary litmus test for anyone claiming to be Messiah was that he would fulfill Old Testament prophecy, and Matthew gives abundant evidence to this in his gospel. So another key landmark uh, that we should be on the lookout for, that we should recognize, are the extended discourses or sermons of Jesus. So within Matthew's gospel, uh, he includes seven sermons, seven extended discourses of Christ that are strategically placed throughout the gospel. And this is a unique feature of Matthew um, in that he, he includes these extensive, detailed records of these sermons of Christ. They are, first of all, the Sermon on the Mount um, in chapter 5 through chapter 7. They are the, uh, the, the commissioning of the twelve as the second sermon to preach the gospel of the kingdom in chapter 10. Uh, in chapter 13, we have the parables of the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 18, uh, Jesus delivers a sermon to his disciples on humility and forgiveness. In chapter 23, he condemns the religious hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. And in chapter 24, in the Olivet Discourse, he speaks a sermon of prophecy concerning the signs of his second coming, and then the final sermon is in chapter 28 with his great commission. Now, one commentator has written that it is, it is important, it is fitting that all Christians know these sermons, where they are in the gospel, and what they are about. Um, so Matthew closes each of these sermons with this phrase, and when Jesus finished this saying, well, actually, it's five of those sermons that he uses that phrase. A couple of them he, he um, presents together. But the, this phrase signals the beginning of a new section with a new emphasis. And all of these sermons, all of these discourses are preceded by narrative portions which relate events of Jesus' life and ministry um, things that he did which set us up for the sermons. So where we see throughout the gospel these, these seven sermons preceded by narrative passages naturally breaks up for us into these sections, the gospel. These sections including a narrative followed by a sermon. Um, so this is... This is how we have broken up, uh, or rather how the, the gospel author has broken up the outline of the gospel for us uh, into these segments. And so if we have the, the PowerPoint pulled up, we could just go through that quickly. So here are our main points that we, we want to see as we go through. And if, uh, do I have a clicker? Can you guys just go ahead and advance? There we go. Uh, so the first narrative section, the preparation of the king, is found in chapters 1 through 4. The, the uh, second portion of that section is the first discourse found in chapter 5. So 1A is the narrative, 1B 
is the discourse, which is the doctrine of the king, the Sermon on the Mount. So our second section after this begins with another narrative portion, which is uh, the manifestation of the king. After this narrative portion, we have his second discourse, which is the commission of the king. I don't have all of these memorized, um, but Jesus commissions his disciples and sends them out to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And then we come to our third section with a, a narrative which describes the opposition to the king, which is presented by Israel, followed by his uh, third discourse, the parables of the kingdom. In our next section, we have a narrative portion where the king instructs his disciples, followed by a discourse, a sermon, where the king also is instructing his disciples. Um, Our fifth section begins with a narrative portion, the formal presentation and rejection of the king at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, followed by a discourse in chapter 23, where the king pronounces woe upon those who reject him, woe to the scribes and the Pharisees, and a lament for Jerusalem. Now, this sermon is is back-to-back with another sermon that is found in chapter 24, the prophecies of the king that we call the Olivet Discourse. And then our final section, uh, chapters 26 through 28, is a narrative portion which describes for us the death and resurrection of the king. And then the final sermon, the final commandment of the king, we see in his great commission. So let's dive into this presentation of Matthew, that Jesus is the king of the Jews. So in part one, the preparation of the king, and feel free to Go ahead and take down that slide, unless people are still copying it, but it's probably, um, yeah, there we go. Sorry if you were still writing. Section one, the preparation of the king. So Matthew's first concern is to settle the matter of Jesus' origin in chapter one. He kicks off his gospel with two staggering truth claims regarding Jesus both of which go straight to the question of his identity. He doesn't mince words. Matthew doesn't beat around the bush. His purpose is clear. He goes straight to the point in verse 1 of chapter 1. He says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This might seem unremarkable to us, but a Jew would read this and instantly recognize the bold claim that the author is making, these designations, the son of David and son of Abraham, were messianic titles. And they evoke these two great covenants, these unilateral promises made by God to Abraham and to David, so that the one who could lay claim to the title, son of David, was the fulfillment of these promises, was the Messiah, the heir to the throne of David, who's going to bring about the kingdom. So right away, we see Matthew tailoring his gospel to his Jewish audience. If your goal was to convince a Jew that someone was the Messiah, the first two questions they're going to ask are, is he a descendant of Abraham? And is he a son of David? And Matthew 
shows that he is. And then he goes straight on to present his evidence to this in the genealogy. Um, which is another Hebrew feature of the book. And I appear to have gotten my notes mixed up here. There we go. So the second major truth claim that Matthew makes in the first chapter of his gospel, we see in verse 18 with the incarnation of Christ. And this passage shows us that the conception of Christ reveals the nature of his person, that he is the Son of God. So look down in chapter 1 and verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So this is the second major truth claim regarding Jesus' identity that Matthew is making, that he is the son of David and the son of God. His conception reveals the nature of his person. His name also reveals the nature of his mission. Joseph was instructed, he was to name the child Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. To the Hebrew mind, the naming of a child was a critical event because they believed that in naming a child, you conferred on them something of the, of the character and the meaning of that name. A child's name reflected who they would grow up to be and what they would grow up to do. Joseph was to name him Jesus. And the name Jesus is a, it is a transliteration into English of a Greek version of the Hebrew name Yeshua. This was a common enough name in Hebrew families going back for centuries. And it means salvation, or God is salvation. In fact, nearly everywhere in the Old Testament where you read the word salvation, it is a translation of this word Yeshua. Psalm 118 verse 14 says, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my Salvation, Yeshua. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 30, when Simeon, uh, this, this, this man, speaks prophetically as he's holding baby Jesus in the temple, he says, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your Yeshua. Imagine Mary and Joseph are like, Did you tell him his name? I... His name reveals the nature of his mission. Spiritual deliverance for his people from sin. So now we have these two incredible truth claims that Matthew has presented. Jesus is the son of David, and he is the son of God. And then he begins to lay out all of his evidences throughout the rest of this book, which will back up this claim. In chapter 1 and verse 23, we actually see the first of these 13 prophetic proofs that we said we were going to look for, um, where he says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. 
So this is, a, this is a quotation, a reference back to a prophecy found in Isaiah in chapter 7, where King Ahaz learns that um, there's this great army coming against him, this alliance between the northern king and a pagan king are marching against Jerusalem, and God tells him, he's, he's shaking with fear, and God tells him to have faith. He assures him of deliverance, and he tells him to choose a sign, Choose a sign which would prove the resolve and the certainty of that deliverance. And Ahaz kind of flakes out. He says, oh, I, I, can't, I couldn't do that. I'm not going to choose a sign. And God says, okay, I will choose a sign for you. Um, and when he told him to pick a sign, he said, let it be as high as heaven or as deep as Sheol. So the magnitude of the sign represents the certainty of the deliverance. And so when, when the Lord himself chooses a sign, he chose a sign which truly was beyond comprehension, that the virgin would give birth, that the eternally preexistent God, God the Son, would take on human flesh, is higher than the heavens, deeper than the earth, beyond all comprehension, and it gives evidence to the strength of the Lord's resolve to bring salvation. And Matthew makes this connection for his Jewish audience by showing them that Jesus is the fulfillment of this and many other prophecies. What God had declared he would do, he is doing through Christ. So in chapter 2, Matthew goes on to show how Jesus is, is received at his Advent with uh, relating this story of the adoration of the Magi. This is an event which is found only in Matthew's gospel. And we're, we're familiar with it, so we, we don't have to go into it at great length. But it's important for us to note that far from just being a, a, a quaint little anecdote from the birth of Jesus Christ, this story of, of these wise men who come to worship Jesus actually sets the stage for the rest of the book foreshadowing Jesus' future reception from Jews and from Gentiles. The story of the Magi shows that while the Gentiles worship him, Jews are either apathetic, like the people in Jerusalem, or openly antagonistic to his reign, like Herod. So in chapter 3, we are given a glimpse into the, the preparation and qualification of Jesus to his messianic role with his commission at his baptism in the River Jordan. Chapter 3, verse 13 says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And then skipping down to verse 16, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So there's a lot going on here. But the main things that we should see are that, first of all, Jesus' bap baptism is an authentication of the gospel of the king kingdom message that John was preaching. Secondly, by submitting himself to baptism, the king is identifying himself with the believing remnant, with those whom he would redeem. 
And this event is also significant because this is the first time that Jesus is, has been presented to Israel as the Messiah. The veil is, is at his baptism beginning to be pulled back just a little, and the glory of identity, of his identity, is being manifested here. Also at his baptism, we see Christ receiving the anointing of the Holy Spirit, a sign of God's commissioning and empowering him to his messianic work. And finally, at Jesus' baptism, he receives this divine confirmation with the Father's voice from heaven, affirming his sonship, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So Matthew is, is carefully laying out He's carefully presenting these qualifications of Jesus to his messianic role, showing his legal qualification in the genealogy and in the virgin birth, showing his divine confirmation and qualification by the Father's affirming word. And now in chapter 4, Matthew shows the moral qualification of, of the king as he is proved by being tempted in the wilderness. So look down at chapter 4 and verse 1. We read, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It was necessary that the king, who would bring the kingdom, be blameless and righteous. So after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness in a physically weak and invulnerable state, Jesus is assailed with temptation by Satan. And where Adam failed, and all other mediators of the kingdom fail, in the wilderness, Jesus succeeds. He withstands the onslaught and proves his moral qualification to rule. In chapter 4, verse 12 and following, we see after having proved his qualification, Jesus' commencement to his ministry. Look down in verse 12. It says, Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So the forerunner has finished his course, and it's now time for the king to appear. Verse 13, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Another of our prophetic proofs. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. In verse 17 of this chapter, we have the content of Jesus' message, which he begins to proclaim. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So his message is exactly the same as that of John the Baptist. He picks up where John left off. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Jesus preaches the gospel of the kingdom. is the predominant theme of his teaching. The kingdom is at hand. It is imminent. It has drawn near. Therefore, turn from your sins so that you may gain admittance. The kingdom was near because the king had arrived. In verse 18 through 22, we see the Lord gathering his, his followers, his subjects, and the calling of his disciples. 
And in verse 23, we read, very importantly, what the three main facets of Christ's ministry are going to be. In verse 23, we read, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction of the people. Preaching, teaching, and healing, these three are going to characterize Christ's work, the work of the king. And so now he has revealed himself to Israel. He is initiating his mission. And in chapter 5 of Matthew, we have what, what you could call the inaugural address of the king. As he outlines the policy of his kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. So beginning in chapter 5, we have this first extended discourse of Jesus. And I'm going to have to move quickly if we're going to get through this. Um, the doctrine of the king in chapter 5. So Matthew gives us the setting for this sermon in verse 1, where he says, In seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So this is the, this is the setting. In order to get away from the crowds uh, and the crush of people so that he can engage in a time of teaching with his followers, Jesus goes up onto the mountain. He's seated in the formal manner of a rabbi, teaching, instructing his students. And he begins in verse 2 by describing the citizens of the kingdom and the blessings that are theirs. Look down in verse 2. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, when all men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In these beatitudes, Jesus is describing the heart realities, the heart attitudes, which are prerequisite to entering the kingdom. He's conferring the blessings of the kingdom on those who possess such a heart. Now, part of what Jesus accomplishes in this sermon is to reveal the necessity of regeneration and of imputed righteousness. See, the problem is no one in their natural state possesses such a heart. No one. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. So if this heart is required to enter the kingdom then we need him to give us this heart. He's awakening in his disciples this realization. The fact that Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees makes it absolutely clear that for anyone to enter the kingdom, they would need to have another perfect righteousness given to them. 
So in verse 17 of chapter 5, Jesus delivers an exposition of true righteousness. Beginning in verse 21, he interprets the true meaning of the law of God to them. In contrast with the superficial version that was being taught by the scribes and the Pharisees, um, which emphasized purely external adherence, Jesus is showing that true righteousness has to do with the whole man and that God desires obedience at the heart level. They were not getting this from their religious teachers. But Jesus shows them the true meaning of God's law. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, do not murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery with her already in his heart. He's showing that what God requires is obedience in the inner man. True righteousness is about the whole person. In chapter 6, in verse 1, Jesus then begins to dismantle the outward hypocrisy of these scribes and Pharisees um, that are, are doing their good works, are doing their righteous actions for man's approval. And instead, Jesus points his disciples to a righteousness befitting children of the kingdom whose chief concern is pleasing their father. One of the many beautiful things about this sermon is Jesus' emphasis, his teaching on sonship. Again and again, we see how it is our personal relationship with the father that alone ought to motivate our righteous action. Jesus says, when you give to the needy, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and so that your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now all of this sonship teaching of Christ speaks to the greatest of all the kingdom blessings which he confers. Adoption into the family of God. But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God. In this sonship focus of Jesus' teaching, we see a reflection of his own heart, who came, as he said, not to do his own will, but the will of his Father who sent him. In the final section of this first extended discourse, we see the warnings of the king, and one Bible commentator has pointed out that while Jesus' primary audience for this sermon was his disciples, the longer that he preached there on the mountain, the more of the crowds are finding him and being added to this group. And so his emphasis towards the latter part of the Sermon on the Mount is on warnings. Warnings against hearing his word and not doing it. Against calling him Lord Falsely. Then we read at the end of the, of the passage, and when Jesus finished these sayings, turning us into this second major division, the second section in which we see the manifestation of the king in chapter 8. His greatness and his majesty are on display in this narrative portion in righteous action as he undertakes his ministry. 
of preaching and teaching and healing. And we see manifested first the greatness of the king in his compassion. In chapters 8 and 9, we see Jesus cleansing a leper, healing the centurion's servant, curing Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. And as word begins to get out that these things are happening, crowds are, are flocking to him, and more and more people are coming who are oppressed by demons and who are sick and who are broken. And this would typify day after day after day of our Lord's life, from morning to night, as the crowds are coming to him, bringing their sick and their injured, clamoring for his help. You can almost imagine the noise and the, the smells and the hectic crush of people and the cries of those in pain. And Jesus, with measureless compassion, wades into the thick of all of this human suffering. And he heals them all. What majestic compassion of the king. So in verse 17, we read another of our prophetic proofs. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So also in this passage with the manifestation of the king, we see him manifesting his power and authority over creation with the calming of the storm, over the forces of the enemy with the casting out of the legions of demons uh, from the two demoniacs. And all of these miracles, which Matthew relates, are to authenticate Jesus' identity as Messiah. Now, in Discourse 2, we see the commission of the king. And for sake of time, we, we won't be able to get into this, but he, he gathers his disciples together and preaches this sermon to them as he sends them out to preach the gospel of the kingdom. He is ramping up his presentation to Israel of himself as the Messiah. Your message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Receive him and receive the kingdom. But at this point, the Jews' rejection of his claim is increasing. It is solidifying. Until this point, they have been on the fence, but soon their rejection of the king will be absolute. In chapters 11 and 12, we see um, the opposition to the king. And in cha chapter 11, verse 20, we read, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Now this, this is a watershed moment in the gospel. Um, one Bible commentator has said that if you want to understand your Bible, uh, you ought to draw a big black line between verses 19 and 20 in chapter 11 because everything changes from this point. Prior to this, Jesus' ministry has been primarily a proclamation to the people of the gospel of the kingdom. He presents himself as king to them, but as their opposition and their unbelief grow, Jesus' ministry emphasis changes. And from this point on, from 11 verse 20 to the end of the gospel, Jesus' primary focus is on instructing and discipling his followers, preparing them for service to him after his departure. So the scribes and the Pharisees ramp up their antagonism towards him, claiming that he casts out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus responds to this 
by withdrawing. Again, we are told that this happens to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit on him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. The king does not coercively enforce his rule. At this first coming, he is the suffering servant. And so he withdraws and focuses his ministry on his disciples. Having been met with the overwhelming unbelief of the people. So in chapter 13, we have a third major discourse of this, uh, of this gospel, which is the parables of the kingdom. So from the point that Jesus turns toward his disciples, he teaches the crowds in parables. Whereas before, it has been this open proclamation, presentation of himself as Messiah. Now he discloses truth to his followers, and he conceals it from unbelieving Israel. Um, so the next main section after this sermon with the parables of the kingdom um, is the king instructing his disciples. He gives them a lesson in faith. In chapter 14, verse 22, as he walks on the water, he prepares the disciples for ministry after his departure in the feeding of the 4,000. He teaches them a lesson about the true cost of discipleship in verse 24 and 25 of chapter 14. He gives them a lesson as to the truth of his majesty and the honor which he has due when he reveals the glory of his messianic kingdom to them on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he teaches them concerning his death and resurrection. So all of the, the narrative portion of this passage flow into what is the fourth major discourse, the major sermon of the king in chapter 18, as he instructs his disciples in humility. The principles of humility which he outlines are that it is, one, necessary to enter the kingdom. It, is, it means greatness in the kingdom. It is necessary to prevent offenses, to carry out correct discipline in the church, and to forgive the offenses of fellow believers. The necessity of humility is the theme of Jesus' fourth sermon. In chapter 19, we come to the formal presentation and rejection of the king in what is called his triumphal entry. And while in one sense it is true that this is triumphant because it will end in the king of glory triumphing over death. In another very real sense, this account is a tragedy. Because despite all outward appearance of the excitement and the people as they're waving their palm fronds and crying Hosanna to the king, these same people will soon be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The king came to his own, and his own received him not. He presented himself unmistakably to Israel as their Messiah. But when he didn't do what they wanted him to do, and when he told them that in order to enter the kingdom, they must repent and turn from their sin, they rejected him. They turned on him. And they looked for their opportunity to kill him. And yet through all of this, the confidence and royal dignity 
of our Lord shines in the face of unbelief. In chapter 21, verse 42, Jesus says, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So quickly, we're going to um, outline these last couple of sections. Uh, Section 5b is... um, the fifth of Jesus' sermons, where he pronounces woe to the scribes and Pharisees and a lament for Jerusalem. Then in chapters 24 and 25, the sixth sermon, the prophecies of the king concerning the signs of his second coming in the Olivet Discourse. And then finally, um, we have in this seventh section, this, this sixth narrative portion the death and the resurrection of the king. The king is called and instructed and equipped his disciples. He's revealed to them the truths of his kingdom that were hidden from unbelieving Israel. And all that now remains is for him to secure the means of entrance into that kingdom for those who will receive him by faith. So Matthew records the events of Jesus' death and resurrection very succinctly. But one of the things that he brings out so clearly is the greatness and the majesty of Christ that is on display as he is before the Sanhedrin. See, these religious leaders, despite every effort, could find no fault with him. His composure and his silence testified to his holiness. And Jesus affirmed before him that he is the Messiah. We see how this corrupt high priest um, forces a confession out of Jesus. He says, I adjure you by by, uh, the living God, are you the Messiah? He puts Jesus under oath. And Jesus under oath says, I am the Messiah. And afterward you will see me coming on the clouds in glory. So in the final section, we read how they condemn Jesus for blasphemy, hand him over to Pilate, where he's flogged, and crucified. And in verse 37 of chapter 27, it reads, and over his head they put the charge against him which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Matthew's message is, it's true. It's true. He's the king. Even in his death, he is sovereign. No man took his life from him. He yielded it up freely, And he is buried, and when he rose again on the third day, just as Jesus said that he would, his resurrection confirmed everything that he had said. It confirmed his claim to be the Messiah. So in chapter 28, verse 17, we have the final discourse of the king and his final command in the Great Commission. So let us close by hearing this final command of our king, who came, was despised, and rejected so that we could inherit the kingdom. He says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. May we receive and honor our King.
All right, you can be dismissed, and we'll gather back here in about nine minutes for Sunday morning worship.